Hello, and welcome to the Metrospective. I'm Ted Berg. The Mets take four out of five from the Atlanta Braves in a huge series, a statement series. And here to talk about it with me is one of the Athletics Mets beat writers, Tim Britton. Tim, there was a pitcher last night who entered the game with doubts about his future, doubts about his, uh, the rem- his remaining tenure with the Mets, how long it would last, doubts about whether you can trust this guy in the postseason, and Joely Rodriguez <laughs> came through. I-, I knew that's where you were going. <laughs> Obviously. I, I should ready have, for I should have it. prepared a few um, more. A few more. Uh, it's funny. After the game, Buck Showalter said, you know, Joely was just as key to that game as Jake was, and then paused for a second and goes, is that a stretch? I don't think that's a stretch. Um, uh, I think it was a stretch. A stretch. Um, it's a stretch. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the the seven outs that Rodriguez got were important for a bullpen that was uh, pretty tired uh, based off of its usage. You know, it had to throw eight innings on Friday. It had the doubleheader on Saturday. Uh, and uh, I think just about everyone except Rodriguez had been used on Saturday uh, outside of Trevor Williams, who threw four innings Friday. Uh, so for him to get those seven outs, you know, when he got four outs, I was like, oh, really nice. You know, I tweeted really nice outing for Joely Rodriguez. Then he came back and got three more. Uh, and he's he's looked really good in his last three outings, uh, basically since the trade deadline. And that is, you know, as you start to project this team moving forward, you start to think about uh, the postseason roster and, and what different roles guys can have. And we've talked about David Peterson being a lefty reliever. Uh, it was brought up uh, yesterday pregame whether Joey Lucchese can be a lefty reliever, uh, and it still seems like the likeliest lefty reliever for this team in the playoffs is going to be Joely Rodriguez, uh, and his last three outings have been a step in the right direction. Um, I want to talk about DeGrom in a minute, but usually we, we save questions for the end. We had two questions this week pertaining to lefty relievers both of which mentioned Andrew Chafin by by name. So can we just can I just jump into two questions real quick about lefty relievers? I mean, is are we even allowed to say Chafin? I think someone put in a, a comment the other day, like we're not allowed to talk about him until the offseason now. I mean, what if what if he simply like had no like how uh, you know I don't know the extent to which it's been reported like how hard the Mets pursued him but like is there is there not a chance that Andrew Chafin is like I want no part of that and I don't want to or like or like I have some personal beef with Jeremy Hefner like can't can't there be other reasons the Mets didn't get Andrew Chafin besides they just didn't want him enough this is not anyone's question this is my question (laughs) well I I do think uh you know I was reading uh Cody Stabenhagen who covers the Tigers for for the Athletic uh, his piece after the trade deadline, uh, and he said basically that, you know, like once again, the Tigers misread the market of their own players, which uh, is true that it's this is not the first time that the Tigers have not traded someone who it seems like they should have traded. Uh, you know, it happened, you know, it's happened with Michael Fulmer for years until they finally traded him this deadline. Uh, it happened with Matt, Matthew Boyd for a long time. You know, it, it happened with other players on this roster this year. Uh, so it, it does seem like, you know, maybe, you know, if, if Chafin were the only lefty reliever out there that we thought the Mets should get and they didn't get him, you could you could point to how Detroit operated and say, you know, maybe that's not a Mets thing. Maybe that's a Tigers thing. Uh, but there were other lefties uh, that they could have gotten. And, and of course, they could have sidestepped that entire issue uh, by just signing uh, a different lefty reliever, such as Andrew Chafin in the offseason. 
Um, Doug Berman, who is, who's emailed us a bunch and, and has great questions, wants to know, uh, one lesson of the trade deadline is the Mets need a deeper form system. But would you say another major les- lesson for the Mets is make darn sure you bulk up in the offseason when all Andrew Chafin and the like costs you a little more money? Do you think the Mets are kicking themselves now for being cautious in March? Well, I, I don't think they're kicking themselves just yet. I, I think. They're seventy and thirty-nine. <laughs> yeah. They are. They have a six and a half game lead in the division, and their bullpen has been good. Right. I mean, like they're not in a position to to regret anything just yet. Uh, you know, I, I do. I did look back at, at what Billy Epler said uh, the day he was introduced as general manager, where he said. You know, the, he, he made this whole point about, you know, maximizing the cumulative World Series odds over a long-term horizon, uh, which is not as pithy as, as Brody Van Wagenen's win now and win in the future, but, you know, basically it's the same thing. Um, and he said, you know, a way to do that is to make sure you hold on to the prospects you have, and I'm, I'm quoting him here, which in turn makes you have to invest a little more into free agent spending. Uh, and so, you know, like, it, we're not... The Mets did invest in free agent spending. They spent a lot. Uh, they, they gave the largest uh, average annual value contract out to Max Scherzer. They signed Starling Marte and Eduardo Escobar and Mark Canna. Uh, they made the trade for Chris Bassett. Like they invested in this team, obviously going in, uh, which makes it you know you just look at it and you say you know left-handed relief was something that that we knew the day the season ended was something they could use, and it's something that doesn't cost that much in relation to everything else. Uh, and it was just a little surprising that they didn't didn't make that one last push for it uh, outside of the the minor league contract they signed Chase and Shreve to. And look, they've they've gotten to it's August eighth as we're recording this on Monday morning, uh, and it has not. I think I don't know that there's a game yet that they've played where we can point to specifically and say that's because they didn't have a good left-handed reliever that they lost. Uh, there's some games where they've been short in the bullpen in general. I don't know that. Off the top of my head, I, I can't think of one where it's like, well, they, they went to a suboptimal option there against a left-handed stretch in a lineup. You know, the, obviously and the there's one against- a, that's always that's going to happen to every team, no matter how well composed your bullpen is. Right, at some point you're going to burn a bunch of guys, and you're going to have a day when you have to use your B team. Right, and the Mets have had a very uh, a pretty good B team. You know, they've gotten they've gotten uh, some important extra innings thrown by the likes of Adonis Medina and Yoan Lopez. We've talked about, you know, what Holderman and Nagosik have done for them at times this season. So, uh, like, their their bullpen has performed, uh, I think, better than you could have expected, especially when going into the season we, we all thought that, you know, that, that might have been where their weakness was. Uh, follow-up question comes from Chad Stoller on Twitter, who wants to know, knowing that the Mets have passed on Andrew Chafin twice already, is it possible there's a lefty or anyone in the minors that they might think can, they can call up and surprise everyone and be a weapon in the postseason? I don't know. I don't think there I is. Think, like I think the answer here is no. Like <laughs> I looked through it and like I, I don't know. I don't think that. I think that guy, like the best, the your best chance at that guy is is David Peterson. Yeah, I mean, like I thought, you know, before the trade deadline, I might have said, well, you know, maybe Thomas Zapucky, uh, who they had. Right. You know, I was my. my I had heard basically since spring training that the Mets believed Thomas Zapucky was a reliever, that they didn't think he could be a major league starter, but they were going to keep him stretched out, you know, while there was the chance that they might need him to start in the majors, as he did in May in a not very good performance in San Francisco. 
Uh, and I was surprised that they didn't move him to the bullpen kind of shortly after that. Uh, and then I thought maybe they're just saving his move to the bullpen until the after the trade deadline. Like they're still trying to sell other teams on this guy as a starter. Because I would have said that uh, he was the guy probably like he was the person in the organization alongside Dominic Smith, actually, that, that felt like the likeliest to be traded at the trade deadline. Uh, they moved Zapucky, but not Smith. Uh, they, they moved him to the bullpen like three days before the trade deadline, which was made it even clearer that they were going to trade him. But at that point, it was like, well, why didn't you do this six weeks ago to see what he could have been for you in this role? Because this is a role that you could use. Because there's always been the thought that like he could play as a bull, as a reliever. Uh, and yet, you know, it's the, the team that, that kind of bludgeoned him back in May is the team that acquired him in San Francisco. Uh, and we'll see, you know, if, if Thomas Zipucky is a lights-out left-handed reliever uh, down the stretch of this season in particular, uh, then the Mets might be kicking themselves just a little. Right, and that was, and we talked about that trade and, and the surprising cost, I think, for Darren Ruff, but uh, Ruff has certainly done his job in his first turn with the Mets. I'm looking right now at their organizational depth chart on baseball reference. Uh, they only have eight left-handed starters anywhere in their system uh, versus uh, 46 right-handers who have started games this this year. No one, I mean, no one anywhere near the high levels is is uh, performing like Peterson has. Uh, and in terms of left-handed relievers, uh, it's it's pretty bleak. Like even the veteran arms, Rob Zastrzini and Alex Claudio have not been great in AAA. Um, they have a couple guys in high A who have been really good, but I don't think those are that's nowhere on your radar when you're talking about the postseason. So I, you know, I think, and and this is one of the things I took away from this series and the the lead the Mets have been able to open up. And we know Peterson's going to have to start a few more times. Uh, they've got another. They they talked about it on the broadcast. They've got another double header coming up. They've got a, a bunch of games in a short time. Um, but I. I think that when you can stretch the lead a little bit like this, it gives you the opportunity to say, like, okay, like, let's let's put David Peterson in a few big spots and see how he does, rather than going with you know, Lugo or Adovino or the more tested late inning arms, um, so you can sort of you know audition him for that postseason role. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a September project for the Mets. You get. You know, Peterson got got optioned back after the, the doubleheader Saturday. Uh, they've got the the other doubleheader on uh, August twentieth against Philadelphia. Uh, he'll start in that game, and then you know as we've talked about, there are a couple of other opportunities for him to start uh, to give guys an extra day of rest. You could also have Trevor Williams start those games if you wanted to. It's, Peterson is not the only starting depth option you have, uh, and so you get into September, uh, you expand the roster a little bit. Uh, I'm actually not a hundred percent sure. You know they've got the pitcher limit. You can only have 13 pitchers out of the 26. Uh, I'm not sure if you can only have 14 out of the 28 when you get to September, or I think you can probably have 15. Uh, so you, you bring Peterson up again in September uh, and just have him kind of work in that role. And, and again, how Rodriguez pitches uh, between now and then uh, will, will dictate just how, how open that, uh, that job is uh, for someone else to take. Uh, but I think that's well, – I'm sure we'll be writing in September about uh, – whether David Peterson should make the postseason roster as the Mets left-handed reliever. That is, we, you can kind of plot out the storylines for that final month in the postseason roster, and that's definitely uh, near the top of the list. Well, you got to start reporting that. Like, get Peterson's high school coach on the phone and such. We want we want an in-depth look at what David Peterson can do in those late innings. I've already talked to all of his college coaches for a story a couple of years back, so, you know, just, I just want, a matter let's of... Hear- 
Let's hear about the Little League game where he had to come in because they weren't doing pitch counts yet, and he had thrown like a brilliant start the day before, and his teammate fell apart, and, and Peterson had to come in with like a Madison Bumgarner effort to win his local Little League in Arcadia, California. No? No, possibly not, because he went to high school in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, David Peterson, I don't know about you, if you know this, Ted, uh, D- David Peterson is younger than I am and we had pitch counts when I was in little league. So I'm pretty sure that he was Did you not really? able to, but, but were they, were they, cause like now they, now they track it across like, cause I, I have some, both of my nephews are pretty serious young baseball players and they're in like a bunch of leagues and now they are like pretty rigor, rigorously tracked across leagues. And I feel like that wasn't <laughs> happening. I wasn't playing in multiple leagues. I wasn't very oh, good. Uh, we had we had the innings. I guess it was less a pitch count than an innings. Like you could not appear in more than three different innings uh, in a in a single game, uh, and then you could only pitch. I think in two different games per week. Um, and so, but was uh, that about was that about protecting the pitchers, or was that about like protecting the opposing lineups from the one kid who's hit puberty? <laughs> Uh, I, I think it was protecting them. I assumed it was protecting the pitchers because I, you know, I had a rubber arm at that point. Uh, I definitely had a much stronger arm then than I do now. Uh, now I can't throw like more than ten pitches from four, from forty six feet um, without feeling it. Uh, then I, you know, I, I could I could I could have gone all six if they needed me to. Uh, I would have I, I would have I was the kind of uh, induced contact pitcher in little league that really doesn't work out because um, you know anything to the left side of the infield is a base hit. Uh, well, and no so, one can field. No one can right. make a put out. It's it's tough being a sinker ball, ground ball specialist in front of a an infield like that. Um, let's get back to the Mets. Uh, Speaking of people I, I, who are not, not that I'm not intrigued. Not, not that I'm not infield, intrigued. Uh, sinker ball, ground ball specialist Jacob Degrom uh, looked. Uh, I feel like sublime was the word that that stuck for me uh, for his you performance know, on Sunday. What's wild is that after two starts, if you look like if you're looking at his stats, uh, it's the same. Like he's like all of the peripherals look exactly like last year's stats. Like this is just like it doesn't matter that Jacob Degrom missed the first five, four months of the season, three months of the season. Like he when he comes back, he's just gonna be Jacob Degrom anytime he's on the mound. Yeah, I mean, is he <laughs> identical? His his fielding independent pitching uh, is one point two four, identical to last season. Yeah, I mean, it's really just the, the ERA that, that feels out of whack because uh, of the two-run homer that he gave up to Dansby Swanson. The, the whip is .469. So what's that? That is three, four hits, one walk, five base runners in 10 and two-thirds innings. You know, he was... It, it really, like, you know, by the fourth inning yesterday, you were looking up, or I was looking up, uh, you know, have has there been a combined perfect game in baseball history? And there has not. Uh, the Rays came like, close a couple is years he gonna ago. Be able to, is he going to be able to pull this off on like 75 pitches? Uh, well, I knew the, the Mets were not going to let him go past six. In- like he could have thrown six innings in 30 pitches. Uh, the Mets were going to pull him uh, because they, they believe in, in kind of the, the ups and downs that a, a pitcher has. Uh, they want to build that one at a time. Uh, so I knew he wasn't going to go more than six. Uh, and you, know, you start plotting out what what else can happen behind him. That was, you know, there's one, you know, Degrom does this often where he looks this good for a long stretch, but he often gives up a hit relatively early in the game. Uh, like uh, he uh, like 
I feel like for a long stretch, Jacob DeGrom would be through six innings, and the only hit he'd given up had been in the second, you know? Uh, he gives up a lot of second-inning hits, it seems. Uh, but yesterday, it seemed, you know, like I was at Roy Halladay's postseason no-hitter when he threw it against Cincinnati in 2010. And I remember in that game, Halladay, like, but three innings into the game, you were like, oh, like, this is this is another level of being on. Uh, I remember seeing he, someone, I saw someone talk about it on Twitter in the first inning, and it was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, that someone was already talking about a perfect game, and then he threw a perfect game. Well, he threw a no-hitter, because he, he walked no Jay hitter. Bruce in the fifth right. inning, and I remember, like, I, I remember just thinking as I'm writing the walk in my scorecard, I was like, oh, he's going to throw a no-hitter instead of a perfect game. Uh-huh. And, like, I had, you know, I'd never seen Roy, I'd seen Roy Halladay pitch in person, like, once before, you know? Uh, but you just understand that there's a different level of guys swinging and missing, a different level of reaction from hitters at the plate, and that's what we saw on Sunday from Degrom. I mean, the the idea that he the the Braves had swung and missed at 18 sliders in a row to start that game is absurd. Like that's not something I never thought to look at before. Um, they swung and missed as though they had never seen a breaking pitch before. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like it, it didn't look like, and that's a good lineup, and those are good hitters. Is not to take it, like they didn't look like major leaguers when they were facing Jake Degrom. I thought you know Ron Darling compared it to a a twelve year old in Williamsport who's got a beard. You know, like like you said, the kid who got puberty early. Yeah. yeah, like like oh, this is just you know like oh he's throwing a pitch that these people have never seen before, uh, and and I mean in some ways he's throwing a ninety five mile an hour slider that you haven't really seen that before. I thought it was interesting. Uh, in the, the very first inning, I was looking at Matt Olson's reactions to DeGrom because I, I actually should have double-checked. I don't believe Olson has faced DeGrom before. And if he has, uh, it was back in 2017, uh, which is before DeGrom became like this version of himself. That was uh, like the and, proto-DeGrom, yeah. Right. Uh, and, you know, he, he didn't... There's what was it, a couple of years ago, I think it was Kyle Freeland struck out against DeGrom and had, like, mouthed wow afterward or something. Uh, Olsen <laughs> didn't quite do that, but you could see he wanted to. Like, the expression in his face was just, I haven't I haven't seen something like that before. Like, 102, 102, 95 <laughs> slider. Um, but yeah, it's like... It, and that's, I, that's one of the best hitters in baseball. So, uh, it just, it seemed unfair uh, for a long stretch of that game. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, to go back to Little League, like there were there were those kids against whom half your team wouldn't show up. Like, oh, we're facing this guy. I'm not even coming. Like, don't even come to the ballpark if you're facing Jacob Degrom when he looks like that, right? Because there's nothing like the swing that Austin Riley took, and that's a good player. Um, on the, it was the 96 mile hour slider that was like a foot and a half off the plate. I, I was just I I, I have uh, it was that was something to behold and I think if you're watching the Mets this season now it's impossible like no matter how beaten down you are by your lifetime of rooting for the Mets this this is something to dream on right now like like what they they are winning all these games and Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom are both pitching like to the top of their abilities um that's that's going to be insane. Like, just stay healthy. Just bubble wrap these guys between starts. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote it uh, this morning uh, in The Athletic that, you know, the 
the performances by Scherzer on Saturday night and DeGrom on Sunday illustrated like the big difference between the, the dynamic between the Mets and Atlanta right now and what it was a quarter century ago. And that is that the Hall of Fame pitchers are pitching for the Mets now. <laughs> um, they've got Scherzer and DeGrom. Uh, it's, it's not Atlanta having Maddox and Smoltz and Glavin to go up against, uh, you know, three out of five days. Um, so that that's the big difference. And and DeGrom, you know, he said afterward that his endurance, like he, he didn't feel like it was fatigue that cost him in that sixth inning when he, he walked Adrianza, uh, Adrianza and allowed the home run to Swanson. Uh, it did see, you know, I thought in the moment, I thought it was, it was probably that he was getting a little bit, a little bit tired. His fastball was, was, he was leaving it up a bit uh, to both those hitters, including on the Swanson home run. Uh, and, and we had seen that, you know, his, his first start, like toward the end of, of that, that start in the fourth and fifth inning, he wasn't throwing quite as hard. Uh, and it seemed like he, he wasn't kind of generating swings and misses the same, the same way he had previously. So it, it feels like, to my untrained eye, it feels like he's just not all the way there with his endurance. He, he thinks he is, uh, and that it's just a matter of taking it smart from, from here on out. But, you know, the next start, like, he should be able to go seven innings uh, and, you know, 90 pitches or something like that. Uh, and then uh, one start after that, it should be kind of all of the shackles are off. Um, and you can see what he can do for you. Uh, and that's just, you know, the idea of, of Jacob deGrom handing the ball to Edwin Diaz uh, in a big game for the Mets uh, is pretty intoxicating. Uh, and that they've got another starter who can do that in Scherzer uh, in a short series. Uh, it really gives you the, a, a captivating sense of the possible for this team moving forward. I'm glad you mentioned Diaz because he looked, he has, I mean, he had the two inning save in the same series uh, and then was just like every bit as, and, and I think you, you drew the comparison in the, in your, in your write up, like uh, he looked like, like Jacob DeGrom on a one inning ba- basis or, or vice versa. I think you said DeGrom looked like Edwin Diaz for, for five, which was true as well. But uh, point is he was similarly unhittable. Um, I just, out of curiosity last night, I put up a Twitter poll asking Mets fans, uh, assuming market rate con- contracts for all three, I now I'm looking and seeing that I spelled, I wrote contacts, but I meant contracts, um, which of these likely 2023 free agents would you most likely to see the Mets re-sign? I'm not surprised by this. Uh, 71% of people said Jacob deGrom, 22% said Diaz, only 7.5%. Uh, said they would most like the Mets to see to re-sign Brandon Nimmo, and I feel like when you're when if you're actually trying to game out like the safest bet there, it's probably the position player. But it's also probably the easiest spot to fill with some, you know like Brandon Nimmo is is a very good center fielder. Uh, he's been one of the best center fielders in baseball this season and and really going back several years. Uh, but. Uh, it's, you've got a guy in Starling Marte who can play that position if you needed him to, and you can sign someone cheaper uh, in right field. Where you know there's there's no other Jacob Degrom. There's there's no replacement for Jacob Degrom. Uh, and at this point, there's no there's no other Edwin Diaz in the game. Uh, you look at you know since that blown save in San Francisco, uh, he has thrown what's that? That's 26 games, 26 and two thirds innings. Uh, he has allowed 12 hits and one run. Uh, three walks and 57 strikeouts. That's 57 strikeouts of 95 batters. That's an even 60%. Uh, his his FIP, his fielding independent pitching, is negative 0.71. Uh, this is, you know, I think 
it feels like every year there is one reliever who does who goes kind of off like this for a stretch of the season. Uh, the Eric Gagne I, I, year, yeah. But I, you know, I don't know that. Uh, I, I feel like you know, once every, I shouldn't say every year there's a reliever who goes off quite like this. I think I think every year there's kind of the one really dominant reliever in baseball. Um, but this feels like the once every three or four years where it's like the entire league is talking about like, how are you seeing what this guy is doing? This is, this is like uh, Zach Britton in Baltimore that, that year uh, in I think 2016. It's, it's like, you know, there was the year Fernando Rodney gave up like two earned runs uh, for Tampa Bay. And I think in 2013 when, when Koji Wahara went in Boston, basically from middle of June was unhittable. Um, but the, the strikeout rate is what really makes this stand out where he does seem nearly unhittable uh and that he's you know commanded where he's not walking guys anymore so like a 57 to 3 strikeout to walk ratio that's that's 19 to 1 isn't it yeah that's that's a lot yeah i think to, to like the the pithy brody van wagenen spin on what you're saying and and when you look at it this way i think you're right like there are a handful of other brandon nimos there will be other edwin diaz's and there is only one Jacob Degrom. Yeah, like that. That we have not seen a, a starter do this kind of stuff over the last. You know, it's really five seasons. You know, going back to 2018, uh, his ERA since the start of 2018 is still below two. Uh, you know, and uh, since the start of last year, it's just been a, a totally an, an even different animal from that where he's barely allowing base runners <laughs> and, and hits um it's uh it's just been incredible to watch you know I, I wrote it uh before he came back that you know it's not reasonable to expect a guy to miss a year and come back and and be the same version of himself uh that he had been prior to that uh but Degrom has kind of he's made his career out of transcending what's reasonable <laughs> like it, it's not reasonable for a college shortstop with a, a 4.8 college ERA uh, to become the best pitcher in baseball, but he did it. It's not reasonable for a guy uh, to win back-to-back Cy Youngs and then get better after that, but he did that. It's not reasonable for a guy at his age to add miles per hour to his fastball, but he's done that. So, uh, the, you know, I I don't know what uh, what boundaries reality can put on Jacob Degrom that he can't he can't go beyond. Yeah, I think, and you know, to that point, like I've been somewhat of a naysayer uh, on this show about uh, Degrom's future with the Mets. Just uh, just trying to like remind people this is a, a starting pitcher in his mid thirties with, um, and that's the correction. He's in his mid thirties, um, who has had some trouble staying on the mound the last few years. But like you said, like he's just such an outlier in every way that it it seems. You know, while I think it's reasonable to have these concerns about uh, entering a big contract with a with a, any starting pitcher um, but especially a starting pitcher with with some recent history of, of arm trouble he's just so off the charts in every way that it's like oh you can't compare Jacob DeGrom to anybody there's no precedent for this so you know maybe maybe you give him the Max Scherzer deal and he is way better than that yeah I mean it's you know like even if he's not a guy who can who can take the mound for you every five days you know 32 times a year and then throw 200 innings for you if he's throwing 120 innings the way the way he's thrown them the last two years it's still really valuable that's still like a 30 million dollar pitcher probably if not more so uh, I feel like uh, you know as long as he's taking the mound on some occasions like that that he's he's worth it because he's just so incredibly good when he's on the mound 
Yeah, you'd like to line it up so that 30 of those innings come in, come in October, though. Yeah, you know, and uh, I, I saw, uh, I feel bad, I forget who pointed this out on Twitter yesterday, uh, but I had not, I had forgotten that, you know, none of DeGrom's 2015 postseason starts were at City Field. They were all, you know, he made the two at Dodger Stadium, the one at Wrigley, and then the one at Kauffman. Uh, and so the, the idea of, you know, the division series coming to City Field, the, the Mets coming off a bye, being able to set up uh, Degrom for Game One of that series, the, the the first home playoff game that they'll play in six years. Uh, I think that is uh, really exciting for any Mets fan, uh, and that you know that kind of uh, internalized sense of dread that uh, a Mets fan has. Well, that's exactly what an opposing hitter would be feeling when they step into the box to face Jacob Degrom in a playoff game like that. Uh, I don't know if it's exactly the same. I don't want to say it's exactly <laughs> the same. Because that's like a visceral, immediate fear. And the Mets fan dread is like something that has been built up over decades. It's just kind of a gnawing inside yeah, thought. Yeah, it's just like you know you will never experience pure joy. <laughs> you might get a hit off Jacob deGrom, but you're never going to stop being a Mets fan. <laughs> I don't know. I'm spitballing. It can go away if you win, you know, what, four or five World Series in a row? It goes away for uh, a season and a half? It it was bad for a long time. It was a really bad place to be a Red Sox fan. And then the Red Sox just became a team that wins a World Series all the time. So there's there's a chance for that. There's a chance that that becomes a thing. And and when you look at, like, what are the real-world scenarios that can make that change, having the richest owner in sports by the team is one of those. Uh, but you, you do understand that, like, by, you know, in, in 2014, when the Red Sox lowballed John Lester and traded him by, by the summer, that was the year after they had won their third World Series in a decade, and fans were very upset. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, we're not that far removed from, from a 2018 season where they kind of just ran over everyone, uh, and they, the Red Sox fans are, are very unhappy currently. Uh, and that's a team that has fired their general manager within two years of winning the World Series twice in the last the last eight years. So uh, it is it is a short lived passion, <laughs> short lived joy uh, when you win a World Series, even for uh, a team like that. Yeah, I can't speak for other Mets fans, but I know I can say somewhat confidently that I will never be satisfied. And that is that is what Steve Cohen has said himself. So you have that in common. Among the many things you and Steve have in common is that uh, inability to ever achieve satisfaction. Um, we uh, we'll do one more question. This comes just because this is a, a bit uh, a bit off the off the normal path, and it comes from Sam Salkin via email. If you've got a question for us, you can get at us on Twitter. Tim's at Tim Britton. I'm at OG Ted Berg, or you can email asktedberg at gmail.com or join us on our live show later this week. Sam wants to know. When a player gets traded and has to travel to meet up with the team, who pays for the flight? The player, the acquiring team, the team that traded them? Does someone pay for their stuff to get moved to a new city? Is it the same for free agents? Obviously, these guys make more money in a month than I'll make in multiple years, so they can afford whatever, but it seems like a lot to deal with in addition to learning a whole new system. It is a lot to deal with. It's really hard. You know, like the... uh you know, Mike Michael Givens having a bad first outing with the Mets. It's like he just got there that day. You know, it was he had been traded like he had been warming up to to pitch for the Cubs. Uh, warm, you know, warming up pregame to pitch for the Cubs on Tuesday, and then he's playing a Wednesday afternoon game for the Mets in a different city. 
uh, in a different time zone, actually. I think the Cubs were in St. Louis, and then he goes to D.C. Uh, so that's that's not easy. I think you give uh, guys who have just been traded a little bit of leeway. You know, like the, the Yankees with Frankie Montas. You know, he hadn't pitched in a while. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of different things that go on when a guy gets traded. I, I believe, you know, the one of the first things when, when you are traded and when you get traded, you know, you talk to, uh, you know, like J.D. Davis was talking to the Mets traveling secretary on Tuesday about travel plans. I don't know who pays for it. I don't think it really matters because uh, it's, you know, it, oftentimes guys are going like it's the same thing. Like J.D. Davis going to San Francisco and Darren Ruff coming from San Francisco evens out. I suppose the Mets had multi, had extra players, so uh, they, they could work that out. That, I think that's a rounding error on teams' uh, expenses for the year. But the it, one of the toughest jobs around the trade deadline is that of travel secretary where you have to handle all of those uh, different uh, flight arrangements, travel arrangements uh, to get guys in there. And then the equipment manager has to have all of the new stuff ready for you. Um, your uniform and all that. Uh, you know, sometimes they, the equipment managers get like a little heads up on something. I remember hearing uh, that when the Red Sox traded Lester for, for UNS Cespedes, that the, I forget if they had a day game the next day. Uh, and that was when the, uh, no, no, it, no, they, they trade the, the trade happened overnight, basically. Uh, but that the equipment manager had heard like after the game the previous night, you know, he'd heard while we were all in the clubhouse, he he was like getting busy setting up Yoannis Cespedes' New Jersey uh, for the Red Sox. So uh, that there's so many different things that go on uh, for people involved with the team, for the travel secretary, the equipment manager, all everything to get it ready for someone so that they can come in and have as seamless a transition as possible. But it's never like entirely seamless. Well, and like I know a lot of these guys have have someone to rely on to take care of these things, but like what if you are like a a young single ball player living on his own? Who handles like your like I just and not that like again, like as Sam referenced, you can afford to hire the high-end movers for, you know, 5,000 bucks like for the best movers in the world uh to to wrap up all your stuff and pack up all your stuff and move it. But you still have to like make that call and get the quote. They want to now they want to I, I'm going through this. They want to come to your apartment and check it out and see how much it's going to cost. So, like, who who deals with that stuff? Because, like, like, are you is the traveling secretary the person who who sends along like the mail forwarding notice and such? <laughs> uh, I assume your agent has some like like your your representatives. There's someone who's tasked with that. Like, I, you know, it's Scott Boris is not figuring that out for his clients, but there's someone who works for him that does. Uh, I think I think that's probably how it works. Uh, that uh, that you know, and and for players who are married and and with kids, like their their wives do a lot of that. Um, that that that's who it's hardest on this time of year uh, is is the families and the wives who've got to do a, a whole lot of work to uh, whether it's um, you know relocating the entire family or figuring out a short term temporary thing. Uh, you know, you, like. You've got to figure out if what school your kids are going to go to. <laughs> Don't I know it? You know, this, Don't the I school know year it. has the school year has in fact started in some some places in the country. Uh, so it's yeah, it's a complicated endeavor, uh, and I think we should all give uh, players who are traded 
uh, just like a week where you allow them to kind of find their surroundings before you really start digging in on criticizing performance. Which is awful because it is all dictated by the by the like the first week. Like Dan Vogelbach could have a miserable year from here on out and people will still love him because he made such a great. I hope it doesn't happen. Uh, and then I said, Dan, I, I Daniel Vogelbach, like it, it, he could stink for the rest of the season. But everybody was like, oh, Vogelbach, that was a good pickup because he had a great first week with the team um and that is as you're saying like the time that we we shouldn't and and you know givens could not allow a run for the rest of the year and people might still not forgive him for his first outing yeah and and i wrote this that day that you know it's it's nice that he has the familiarity with buck showalters that the manager himself would not feel that way about him uh you know i when i when i covered the Sox, they acquired fernando abad uh one trade deadline to be their left-handed reliever uh and in his like his first appearance was in Seattle, like protecting a one nothing lead in the eighth inning with a runner on. And I, it might have been his first pitch. It was definitely his first batter. Robinson Cano hit a two run homer uh, and they lose the game. Uh, and Fernando Abad did not appear in like a high leverage situation the rest of the season. It was he had his one batter chance uh, in his very first appearance, like the day after he was traded. It didn't work out. And that was it for him. Like, I don't think he I forget if he even made the postseason roster that year. Uh, because he just kind of got buried on the depth chart. Uh, and that's what happens a lot of times when, you know, a lot of managing your bullpen is the gut instinct and trust you have in guys. Uh, and if you, you know, betray that trust right away, it's hard to win it back. And the, the nice thing for Givens is that he's got the, the built-in rapport with, with Buck Showalter that uh, he knows that, you know, giving up five runs the day after he was traded uh, in a nine-run ninth-inning appearance is not, is not enough to bury him. We will be back to talk more about the Mets later in the week. They've got a series coming up with the Cincinnati Reds. They've got a a very favorable schedule the rest of the way. Um, So we will certainly discuss all of that. Tim, till next time, peace out. Adios. Adios.